I'm very happy and glad that we were not on fire here. So you did very well, very good. Thank you for your participation. It's really important that at that moment you think first about your life and then about your computer. So, <laughs> so whatever you have on the computer, save in a thumb drive and have it with you all the time. Okay. Now that you did very well. Are you ready now to go to... I see it's a little bit different here to, to the lecture. Yep. All right. The assigned reading is difficult here, as this is a lecture taken from many different sources. And there is no sense that you read all the articles that I read. So I think it's very self-explanatory. And if you have questions, you always can email me or put it better on the forum. So neonatal and infant nutrition, and here they are. Premature means uh, younger than three months old, it's tiny uh, premature baby. Then neonatal, after birth, up to 28 uh, 20 days, years old. Now I'm also a little bit redder. 28 days old, right? So that's all neonatal. And then infants, uh, and we also call them babies, they are up to one year old. It's from the Latin means unable to speak. That's where the infant name comes from. Now, when you are a physician and uh, infants are, and babies are your um, patients, you have to read their body language. That's, and you will do very well with that. Yeah, so here they are, very happy. None of them is sick in the moment. And there is, however, a neonatal hemorrhagic disease. And it's also known as vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And it occurs in the first week to a small number of babies, so it does not occur to all babies. And to those, however, who do not receive a vitamin K shot. It is practice to give a vitamin K shot to babies, but if that doesn't happen, then uh, vitamin K deficiency bleeding can happen. If it happens in the first week, then, or in the newborn, it's rarely fatal, it's only a, a bleeding, but if it, it's in a child from up to six month, year, uh, month of age, then it can happen, and this is the late vitamin K deficiency bleeding. It's rare, thank God, but it can be lethal. What happens then, the baby is maybe five months old, happy, wonderful, growing, and suddenly it becomes not, uh, has cerebral and intestinal hemorrhage and may die. So that is a problem, and that is also a problem in handling that and in prevention. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics has recommended vitamin K1 shots. K1 is from the source of uh, plants, and there was a big discussion. And before that, we do this here now, 1961, before that, a different type of vitamin K was given, and it was also the dosage was higher. And there was a lot of discussion about that. And now it is down to one milligram vitamin K1 shot and giving that by injection to newborns. So 
giving an injection to a newborn raises concern. And there had been in Canada and in the U.S. an outcry of patients, of parents that say, we are not going to do that to our baby. As what do I inject there as well? It's not the pure vitamin K. It has to be into a solution. And that is very, and that is um, difficult. And the more alert the parents are, the more the companies make sure that the fluid that you inject with it is not harmful for the baby. Then people said, well, you can give it orally. And you see, I didn't know that you can give this as vitamin K pills. But that is also difficult. You have parents have to give it in multiple doses, and sometimes they forget. The dose might come back to you. Baby spits it out, doesn't like it, so there it goes. And it has to be given after food intake. And mainly cases, the baby doesn't like it. So there, I only wanted to alert you as a physician. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that one milligram vitamin K1. But also if you have parents that are concerned, try to talk them into the oral uh, application. Yeah. So here is now the vitamin K1 is a lipid-soluble vitamin. It's a lipid, and it's needed for efficient blood clotting. Vitamin K has its name from that. K it was in a, a Swedish-Danish group from clotting blood clotting. They, they don't write it with a C, they write it with a K. So from plants, we call it phylloquinone K1, and that is the one that is injected. From bacteria, we call it menaquinone K2, and as a drug, also menadone is K3. So you see, as a natural source, we have it from plants, or we have it from bacteria. Now, why are neonates vitamin K deficient? First of all, their food is milk, and milk is very, very low in vitamin K. And in formulas, they add now vitamin K, as why not? It would be a good idea to give it then over the infant formula. K1 is mainly found in green vegetables here, and definitely the neonatals don't eat that. And K2, don't get it from the bacteria as newborns have sterile intestine. Are you with me so far? Good. Now, nutrition for neonates and infants, they has to be special. They require a healthy diet in time of intensive growth. And we can have milk or formula, and formula can be adjusted with specific macronutrients. Milk has sugars, lactose, and oligosaccharides. Oligo means a number from 10, uh, 10 to 15 or something in that range. And they have milk and formula have fatty acids of the omega-3 and omega-6 family and milk proteins. They are special proteins and we uh, differentiate into whey and casein or casein. And these proteins give the dietary essential amino acids. We, that's why it's dietary essential. There are amino acids we cannot synthesize, do not synthesize, and in most cases it's no problem. We have it in the diet. But for 
infants and uh, we have also, and we call it then, conditional essential amino acids. They need more than we need in our adult life as they are growing so rapidly. It makes a lot of sense, right? So that was once you have your uh, body shape as an adult, you don't have so many dietary essential amino acids. And amino acids that you can synthesize are needed in infants as conditional essential, as you need more than normal. Now, human milk has especially high amount of lactose, and lactose is a disaccharide, is glucose and galactose, and it pre uh, presents about 40% of the caloric intake. And now I have here compared a human uh, um, milk composition, and we have cow, goat, sheep. Now, if you look at the human, you see that is the uh, highest amount of lactose that you find in milk. Very, very high of lactose. And fat and protein. And look at protein. It has the lowest amount of protein. So when a mother cannot feed her child and cow milk is given, it needs to be diluted. And why? Due to the high protein content. The high protein content of cow milk is harder to digest. So um, you can substitute if you have no other choices, but the protein content is much, much higher in the other species. Now, if we eat lactose here, we have an enzyme which is called lactase. ACE signals an enzyme, and we cleave the lactose to galactose and glucose. If you are lactase deficient, you cannot do that. And the lactose, which normally was cleaved, and you galactose and glucose disappear into the intestinal mucosa cell. You remember which transporter that was. SGLT1, co-transport, secondary co-transport with sodium ions. It's not there. It will never reach the uh, large intestine. But if lactose is not cleaved, then the lactose shows up, and then bacteria cleave it, and they make molecules that attract water. And as a result, you have bloating, diarrhea, and dehydration. This is happening in lactose-intolerant individuals. But if that is a rare case that the enzyme is deficient, already at birth, congenital, existing at birth, lactase deficiency, that would be life-threatening, as the milk is the nutrition of the baby. So the baby cries, gets fed with milk, gets severe bloating, uh, diarrhea, and, and pain, cries more, and you might think, oh, it's still hungry. Yeah? So it's a very, very dangerous cycle that can be there. And now it is much more in, in the uh, knowledge. And then if that is tested, then the baby can be fed with uh, formula. And then the baby is just later on um, has a diet like a lactose intolerant person. But at the time of birth, the lactase activity is the highest. That's, or shortly after birth, it's the highest. Makes a lot of sense as milk is the main nutrition. 
and it goes down at age seven to eight, not in all individuals, it can decline, as then milk is not a main nutrient anymore. Are you with me so far? So it is dangerous to feed that baby with milk. There's another part that you have to watch out as a physician, and you will anyway, there is a routine analysis of newborns with a urine test for reducing sugars, and if a galactose is found in the urine, that indicates classical galactosemia, and that enzyme is, you have an enzyme deficiency in the, in the liver, and you should not feed galactose and you should not feed lactose, both of them. As you make galactitol, that is a molecule as an alcohol, and it leads to brain damage, cataracts, liver and kidney damage. So these two things you have to have in your mind. Lactose, congenital lactase deficiency, when the baby needs lactase the most, and in classical galactosemia, there shall be no galactose in the diet, which then also refers no lactose in the diet. And there are special formulas available to feed these children. Now, milk stimulates also development of a healthy gut and the immune system. It's very important. As you know, the gut is uh, prior to birth sterile and immune system is immature. And in milk, in human milk, we have HMOs, that's an abbreviation for other things. Here it's human milk oligosaccharides. And that is food for friendly bacteria, bifidobacterium and lactobacillus. And these bacteria then can grow and they ferment these oligosaccharides short chain, uh, uh, saccharide uh, chains, and they make an acidic pH. And with that, the pathogenic bacteria cannot grow well. So that's why the, why are the milk, it is now started that the gut gets a healthy immune system. If we look at the HMOs, I'm not asking you to remember the side chains. I only want you to see here, um, you have the HMOs here in green part. You have lactose, lipids, protein, HMOs, and the macro and micronutrients, and then you can put them aside, and they have chain length up to 10. It depends, and we call this all oligo. Not so many. Oligo has no real say, okay, from 2 to 10, or 10 to 20, 10 to 15, that all falls out under oligo. All right, now the immune system has to be developed, and we have the innate immunity, and we have to make sure that um, we have, uh, on purpose, can generate radical scavengers, but also radical oxygen species to destroy bacteria and intruders and you have the adaptive immunity using antibodies. Here in this lecture, we mostly focus on the antibodies, and anyway, nutrition is important for both systems. You need essential and conditional essential amino acids, fatty acids, the monounsaturated and polyunsaturated, 
vitamins A, C, the Bs, E, and folate, and minerals, iron, selenium, zinc, and copper. If you are still interested about these minerals, you can look up which enzymes need that. Yeah? Glutathione peroxidase needs selenium, and zinc is found in over 500 enzymes, so that would be not so good to look up. You might not be ended, uh, done by the end of the night. But these minerals have to be provided. If we have the immunoglobulins, you see here in this, I found this, and it looks very good. During pregnancy, you have passively transferred maternal IgG. So you, during pregnancy, that is given, and after birth, not anymore, and you see it's, not, it's in milk, but not that much. So you have a short, transient, low IgG level. Then at, after birth, you have more IgM, and here is IgA. And in this case, it means immunoglobulin A, and it is provided via milk. So during pregnancy via the blood, IgG, after birth, provided by milk, high levels of IgA, followed by IgM and IgG. Now, IgA is special. It protects upper respiratory infections. Now, if you think about it, what is an immunoglobulin? It's a protein, right? And if you have it in milk, what happens to it? It's degraded. So how come that is beneficial for the baby? I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you think, okay, it comes via the blood. Yeah? Then it's still no digestive system in between. But now if it comes from the milk, there is the digestive system of the baby in between. And we found that in, baby, in infants, you have the immunoglobulins are only partially digested. And the antigen binding sites remain mostly in, intact. And that's how it can work. If it would be totally degraded to all the amino acids, there would be no immunoglobulin. And the antibodies actually code the intestine, providing protection from pathogens. I only want you to realize that, that it is amazing that these immunoglobulins are still functioning. And then after two to three months of age, they babies produce their own antibodies. And here's a clicker question. Please make sure that you get it. You can talk to each other. This is fine. I like it when you communicate.
All right, please cast your vote. Okay. The winner is it's found in high amounts in human milk. I'm not going through the others in the moment. You're out of time constrained in the moment. If you just look at that and go one step back, the passively transferred across the placenta was IgG, not IgA. And mainly synthesized directly after birth now is given over human milk. All right. If we talk about milk more, we know that it has fatty acids of the omega-3 and omega-6 family. And there is something special in milk which made uh, scientists thinking. First of all, free fatty acids, are, can they pass the blood-brain barrier? Free fatty acids. Normally not. Only the dietary essential. Only linoleic acid and alpha-linolenic acid. We know for sure they pass also in the adult blood-brain barrier. They have to, right? They're dietary essential. The others cannot. Now the question is, milk has also arachidonic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, DHA. We can just say DHA. And they also pass the blood-brain barrier in infants. And they are very, very, especially the DHA for brain development, very important. So then people got the idea and said, we want to make a study, or if you want to make a study whether DHA passes also in adults, what would you have to do? No. Would you find test persons? Would you be a test person to say, I want to... I feel much better if I know whether it passes or not. No. So there, is, I wanted to tell you here, sometimes we are not investigating things, and we know in infants they do it. Very likely maybe DHA in the adult brain too, as we know that in the elderly, uh, substitution with DHA helps uh, memory loss. So it's a very big hope on that. It's not only good for the cardiovascular system, but also for the brain, brain function in the elderly and in the adult. So here, if you just say, we know it from children as there have been children who had been deprived of it. And that's why we know that children who are deprived of DHA have a different brain development. Yeah? So now, with the milk, it is important for you also as a physician to tell the uh, mother that if she eats a diet rich in fish oil, which is rich in DHA, the milk will have more DHA for her baby. So here is where the nutrition all comes in into prevention of uh, diseases. Now when we look at DHA here, they have a high concentration in the phospholipid membrane of the uh, brain. They, it's needed for the fluidity. And here I found this picture. You see here weeks of pregnancy. During pregnancy, DHA is taken up from the blood into the um, developing child. And after birth, it is provided by milk. So it's a very, very important 
uh, nutrition. And here you see the brain size triples in size in the first year of life. And you can measure that. Head circumference is measured for the brain development. And for this development, you need tons of DHA as well. And for the fluidity here. It's a main structural component of the lamina me membranes here. All these are membranes, and all these have DHA in it so that it has the right fluidity. And otherwise, retina uh, cannot work well, and the rhodopsin, which is in, also in here, cannot work. So we need it for uh, vision, but also for maybe even cell signaling and other function. There opens a whole of uh, research now related to DHA. Are you with me so far? All right. Now let's go to the uh, proteins. Human milk is special. It has two types of proteins. One is called casein, and it's very easily digestible. It has C as in casein, C carbohydrates, C Calcium, if you want to lock that in into your memory, it might help. Casein with carbohydrates and calcium and phosphate follows. And it's a high source of quality of amino acids, and you should know it's rich in prolin. Why would uh, a neonate need a lot of prolin? Where do you use prolin? Collagen synthesis, and you synthesize a lot of it, so it's rich in prolin. And then the other type of protein is whey protein, and there is a high quality of amino acids, especially the branched-chain amino acids, and leucine in particular. Leucine if, stimulates protein synthesis, and if you are a bodybuilder and you drink a shake, um, and you see leucine is there, or if you are dealing with the elderly, and they get an amino acid shake, they get leucine as well, as that stimulates protein uh, synthesis. And in the baby, it leads to the positive nitrogen balance. Now, whey protein is different. It's a mixture composed of alpha-lactalbumin that is rich in cysteine, tryptophan, and cysteine is needed to make glutathione, gamma glutamyl cystinoglycin, very, very important tripeptide, and tryptophan for serotonin synthesis. Then you have lactoferrin, and that inhibits the growth of iron-dependent bacteria in the, in the GI tract of the neonates and infants. So you see that in that milk there is a lot of stuff that is very helpful to protect the baby. For example, lysozyme. And it protects the infant, again, E. coli and salmonella. Then you have the immunoglobulins, mostly IgA, as we already mentioned that, followed by IgM and IgG, and some maternal serum albumin. Now, dietary essential amino acids in infants and adults. I'm just, you have read, learned them already for the adults. Now we say that's, of course, in infants as well. But I want you to be reminded why we need that, why they are so important. Methionine for SAM formation, that is the activated form of methionine, S-adenosylmethionine, and it is the methylation usage in, in our body. 
and methionine is used to synthesize cysteine. That means if you eat methionine, which is dietary essential, the body can synthesize cysteine. Then you have threonine, component of proteins, phenylalanine, you remember you need it for catecholamines, melanin, tryptophan, serotonin. Lysine is very often part of enzyme complexes as it has this long side chain. Arginine locks into the urea cycle and to nitric oxide synthase. And last but not least, the branch chain amino acids, valine, isoleucine, and leucine, they stimulate protein synthesis. Now, babies need more. Here they are. You see they are playing nicely. They are growing at the same time tremendously. And they need as dietary essential histidine. And we call it then conditionally essential for hemoglobin synthesis, glutamine, for nucleotide synthesis, cysteine, which we can make from methionine, they need more as they need a lot of glutathione. And glycine, which we can synthesize, is used in high quantity for heme synthesis, proline for collagen synthesis, and tyrosine for melanin and hormone synthesis. So please um, just get used to memorize these conditionally essential amino acids that we need during extreme growth. Now, that changes even after six months, then we need supplementation with mashed solid food in addition to milk or formula. And the baby needs solid mashed food. And you can have it in, in a mashed way and pureed food that is easy for the child to eat and to digest. And here just a little bit for relaxation, things you know already, but if you eat next time an avocado, think about it's rich in fatty acids and minerals. If you eat a banana, it's rich in electrolytes and calcium. And carrots, peas, these are all food for babies, it's rich in beta-carotene and minerals, Sweet potato now and squashes here that is special for the babies. It's easy to digest for them. And pears, once you mash those, they are the least acid fruit. And they have a lot of vitamin K and copper. So I want to, you to get interested in food sources and see what do I really eat. I mean, you are not the adult, but if you have infants or infants in the family, why do we give them that and what is good for them? And as a physician, get the parents excited to feed the child good. But if we look at adequate intake and recommended daily allowances, we see a very strong difference in iron. Um, up to six months, that's the uh, allowance, that uh, adequate intake. And now it really goes high after six months to one year, and that's the area what we are looking up to. And you see here the iron. And why would that be? Why would that suddenly show up? Doesn't the baby know iron all the time? And the answer is yes, but it has an iron storage in the liver. And the liver here was provided by the mother. During pregnancy, the mother provides the baby with iron that is stored in the infant's liver later. 
in the baby's liver. And that storage lasts about six months. After that, then it needs to be, iron needs to be taken up by the food. And the problem is milk, human milk, is very low in iron. Doesn't have much. But as the baby had the, the liver storage, it didn't show up up to six months. Yeah? The liver had enough iron for the baby. Now the storage is empty or getting empty. Now the milk, if milk is the food, it's not sufficient. And it was calculated as we need 11 milligrams of iron a day for these infants that cannot be provided via milk. It's, it's just not there. Baby cannot drink these masses of liters to get the iron. Now if we look shortly at the dietary uptake of iron, we can see here inorganic iron that is not in heme, called non-heme iron. If that has to be taken up into in the intestinal mucosal cell, it has to be in the ferrous form. So only then it can go in. If the iron is in heme, if the iron is in a ferrous in heme, we call it heme. If it gets, in most cases, is it changed in water phase to ferric iron, then we call this molecule hemin. But for simplicity, they, we just call heme. It has mostly ferrous iron, ferric iron mix. Yeah? So one cannot really say which one it is. So heme iron has a transporter and goes all in. So it can be, if it is in the ferrous state, in the ferrous state already here, or it can be in the ferric state. It's hidden here. It goes together with the heme molecule inside. Inside the intestinal cell, we make ferrous iron, and then we store it as ferritin. Or we put it out into the blood, but there, if we ever want to transport it to transferrin, it has to be in the ferric form. Away from that, it is important that the nutrition has iron. And you see here, in, if it is in the non-heme iron, it has to be in the ferrous, where else it is in the heme iron, it's easier to take up. What does it mean to the baby? Well, it has to do with the bioavailability. The babies were fed with spinach puree for many, many centuries, actually, and is high in inorganic iron. Only the problem is, if it is not in the ferrous state, if the acidity is not high enough in the stomach, then it is in the ferric state, and it cannot be taken up. So it has to be ferrous, and spinach has also phytates, which bind the iron, and polyphenols, which bind the iron. So actually, one has to think about more bioavailability than the actually content of the food. And yes, spinach puree is good if you give orange juice at the same time to the baby, as that makes the stomach pH very acidic, for example, or vitamin C. But the availability is not very good. And that if you give a meat puree, you have the iron in the heme group. And that is often given as then you have the iron better available. Yeah, are you with me? Okay. 
And here when we look at the growth charts of breastfed infants, boys and girls, you should, the summary here, the first three months, the baby may gain two pounds per month. After six months, the baby may gain one pound per month. So it slows down a little bit. And after nine months, the baby may gain less than one pound per month. That is actually, I phrased it here instead of your looking into the graph and say, what is this about? Yeah, you see, in the first three months, the growth is, is the strongest. Now, I was not really thinking about it, but when I investigated it all, I found a chart like this, where the stomach capacity was compared from the neonate up to the adult. And that makes sense, as with the increased need for food, and the growth after birth, the stomach should grow too, so that more food. Even if you feed five times per day, you want to give more quantity with each feeding into the uh, child. And they had it here, a strawberry is the size of a neonate, a small kiwi, two-month-old baby, an orange for a one-year-old infant, and a small cantaloupe, an adult. I thought that was a fantastic idea to compare that, as if I say two to three ounce or seven to ten ounce, we don't really think in ounces. But here it makes sense, you have to have a bigger stomach. And now I give you your last quicker question. All right, that was a very easy lecture, like, and we made it even in time now, mostly in time. And as I, you have all the choices here, make sure that you can tell a little story about each choice, as these are the choices that can show up. All right, here we are. DHA is the winner. I thank you very much. If you have questions, put it on the forum or ask me. Thank you very much. Please have a good day.